Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, and only uh, maybe three or four weeks ago we began to look at what it says, and to be honest, I've been so thrilled studying it, and, and even assumptions that I had about these people of old, the ancients, the patriarchs, those who had followed and feared God uh, in the Old Covenant, I, I myself had been carrying through many assumptions uh, and interpretations that have just been wrong. And so reading through this and, and understanding what the scriptures say about their lives and, and how God commended them has, has shifted my thinking and has brought so much joy. And uh, I know I'm, I'm still pretty young, but there's still just so much awesome stuff to discover in the scriptures. It's not a, a book that you just read once. Uh, but here we go. In summary of all of them, in Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And so what I want to point out is uh, other translations say actually that faith is the evidence of things hoped for. And that hope that is present there is this biblical hope that is not a cross your fingers sort of hope that you're like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was an afterlife? Wouldn't it be cool if God really existed? Wouldn't it be nice if, if my sins were truly forgiven? No, this is a, a hope and certainty. This is evidence that has led us to the point of, of trusting and believing God. Uh, it's not merely the belief that God exists, but as later in this passage, it says that believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, faith elsewhere in the scriptures through kind of parallel texts, we find out uh, you could define as meaning to trust God, trusting what God says, uh, which we'll later on in the series look about a at Abraham's life in which he believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteous. And elsewhere it says he had faith, and it was accredited to him as righteous. And so you could somewhat equate uh, believing God, believing the things that God speaks as being what faith means. And so it's having this relational trust with God that he's gotten you to the point where you believe the things that he claims. And so all of the people of old received their commendation, not condemnation, got to be careful where I pronounce that, their commendation, they were uh, accredited, they were accounted as righteous, not because of the works they did, but because of their trusting God. All right, and that's the part where sometimes when we read these Old Testament stories, we think of these as heroes. We think of these people as like, look at their incredible, their incredible acts that they do, their works of righteousness, but yet it wasn't ever those things which caused them to be considered right in God's sight. And so we're going to see that again today in the life of Noah and uh, the songs that I've picked uh, even prior has me thinking about Noah and his life and even just this last song about our lives being just this little wave tossed in the ocean and thinking about Noah and his family uh, desperately holding on to God through the destruction and judgment of the world. And yet the passages that we'll see over this next few ser uh, sermons, uh, we'll see that even through all of that, God remembered Noah. Right, that God was mindful of this, this little man and his little family in this, well, giant boat. 
Uh, but nonetheless, here we go. So verse 7 in Hebrews 11. And we're not going to hear all of Noah's story today. I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, by faith. So once again, this is the significant thing that's tying together all of these people of old that are, that are being commended in, uh, in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so one of the things I want to point out, tying that back to uh, verse 1, it said that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And Noah, it says that he had been warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And so the things that God was describing were going to happen were things that has never happened on the world, but on the basis of his relationship and his walking with God, he was able to trust that even things not ever seen before, that if God says they're going to happen, he can believe what God says. And so Noah is this character who, once again, although he does many, many righteous deeds, uh, he still is a screw-up. He's the first person to sin in the post-flood world that's documented, right? Like, he still is messed up in different points of his life, but those are not the things that make him righteous. His righteousness is the, the kind of righteousness that comes by faith. Is, that's what that, that last line about his life, summarized in Hebrews 11.7, says. And so this is this, this man who uh, is accredited as righteous because he trusted God. And yes, when we trust God, we eventually do good works, right? We eventually live and obey. We walk differently because we've experienced this God and this relationship he invites us to. And so let's jump back to Genesis 5. And so this is pretty early in the Bible. You could probably find it uh, just all the way back at the beginning. Genesis 5 is the first time Noah's mentioned, and this is... Uh, when he was named and by his dad, uh, Genesis 5, 28, it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. And then it gives a little explanation as to what Noah means and why he chose this name. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. All right, uh, another simpler one-word definition for Noah would be rest. That his name means rest. That there was this hope somehow attached to Noah that no longer would we, we be cursed according to the ground like that had happened to, to Adam, that had happened to Cain, but Noah would bring rest to humanity. And that's probably not the way that we would think about it. And we might not fully understand that until we <coughs> study more about his life, but it is through Noah that rest shall come. Now, let's see, Genesis 6, 5, and I skipped the first four verses. I don't have time to get into it, but they are worth reading, and we might look at those a little bit later, but they have like some backstory where it says almost meanwhile, and then a whole bunch of stuff is happening in the spiritual realm, okay? But uh, we're just going to focus on Noah's life and the generation he lived in today. Verse 5, the Lord saw, okay, and so God having created humanity and the world and all of these events. He sees the fall of Adam and Eve, right? He sees Cain and Abel. We read about that. He walked with Enoch and Enoch was not. We heard that story. And there's generations in now. And, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
All right? And so God looks upon his creation and this is what he sees. All right? That the hearts of men are continually evil. That it's not just in their actions, but all of their intentions are evil and corrupt. All right? And, and we might think of the, the story of Noah and the flood as being God being angry in his judgment and his wrath, which God does get angry, but he's really slow to get there. Right? He's abounding in steadfast love to a thousand generations. He, he does bring justice and wrath and judgment, but he is so merciful and gracious. That is the personality and the character of God multiplied many times over compared to this judgment. But notice this, verse 6, and the, Lord, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. Skipping a few verses to verse 11 and 12, we see some greater detail about God's looking upon the earth. Where you might like initially think like, you know, God just saw like people's hearts were messed up, like, you know, and he's deciding to do this. That seems a little excessive is what you might think. But it hits home when we read verse 11. He says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so we may at first, when we read God's looking upon the hearts of men, and, and we hear his response and his intent to bring judgment, we might think like God's just being overly righteous. We might initially read that and think like, you know, God's just got this ridiculously high bar is maybe the, the way you would first think about that. Right? We might think that God judging intentions and motives shouldn't matter. Merely our actions, perhaps, is what we would consider. And I realize we often think, as humans, that our sins are victimless. And that it, but that doesn't make them any less sinful or significant in the heart of God. All right? That even the things that take place here that no one ever sees, that we're able to mask and hide and present ourselves as righteous in the sight of others, the things that are in our hearts still break God's heart. When, we're, when they're done with evil intent. We may think that transgressions don't bring direct harm or violent, that don't bring direct harm or violence to other people aren't really that bad. We might think that things like, you know, lying and adultery or any sort of gluttony or all of these different things, slothfulness, we might think like, well, what's the big deal? I'm not hurting other people with my actions. I'm just doing these things that I desire. We might put them in a category of like, this isn't all that bad. What's God upset about? But yet, when we read the words that the world was filled with violence, we may begin to understand like, oh, wait a minute. This was screwed up. This was messed up. Something was really broken here. We may begin to respect God's conclusion that he made. Consider this. We read the story about Cain and Abel. And if the blood of one man was crying out from the ground for justice at the act of the first murder... How much more would God need to respond when an entire chorus is singing out from the earth because the earth was full of violence? God could not remain neutral. God could not remain silent. He had to respond. And right, and so we must, we must recognize that if he is just, he cannot ignore his creation acting in that way. <coughs> We might think when we first read that this generation must have just been so much worse than we are. 
Right? This must have just been a really wicked group of people. And in some ways, it does say that their wickedness was great upon the earth. Yet perhaps not so. When we read a, a, a quote from Jesus describing this time period in Matthew 24, Jesus says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so what's interesting, like when we read about Jesus' description of the world at this time, of society in that generation, it sounds kind of normal, right? <laughs> like it's like, you know, they're just, they're feasting, they're, they're having weddings and things like that. And, and while, yes, it did rain on Katie and my wedding day, it wasn't like this, right? When suddenly, like things that they would have perceived as wonderful and celebrations and all sorts of things that God shows up with rain and destruction on that day. And they weren't expecting it, right? When we read about them just having these feasts, it, it sounds kind of like normal life. But I want to point out that the things that we are accustomed to, the normal life that we are used to, alongside that is simultaneously happening things that God would describe as continually evil in the hearts of men. That it's possible that we living in and among this generation, we could just be so saturated in the culture that we don't even recognize the things that might break God's heart. Right? That we just are so used to it that we don't, we're not sensitive to the evil that is done by humanity. Right? We might think that in Noah's day, Jesus, like, these people don't sound all that bad. They're just having a good time. Right? Eating, drinking, and giving in marriage. We might think that evil must somehow be drastically evil to even count. I want to point out that as far as God's response, it's justified. He is the just judge of all the earth. When we think about this story, I want to point out that this isn't some cute little story. Right? God wasn't trying to corner the market on bathtub toys of little boats with animals in it. Right? God wasn't trying to like, come up with a story that you could decorate your nursery with. Right? This is a serious story that God wants us to know. It's preserved in his word. It's recollected by Jesus and many of the apostles and called back upon for us to know and remember because the message of this story is still relevant even in our generation. What's interesting is that it begins with God. It's saying that God saw the wickedness of, of man on the earth. And I want to suggest, it's not as though God didn't know what the outcome of his humanity was going to be. It's not as though God was surprised by what humans were doing. All right, God is the one who sees the end from the beginning. And so it's not like he's like, oh no, what happened to my creation? He knew what was going to happen. And I want to point out that you and I are the same way. Consider the reality of maybe some loved one that has passed away. At no point does our knowledge of that fact change, right? We might know for sure that that event had occurred. But then it's when something like a song or a memory or a moment or a place passes our sight and our thoughts and our minds that we're brought to the point of tears, right? It's when we're suddenly emotionally brought to that moment and we see something that our heart breaks all over again. It's not as though by seeing something or hearing a song that we were like, oh yeah, that person did pass away. I didn't think that ever happened. Our knowledge didn't change. 
It's just that we're emotionally present. And I want to suggest that similar to what's happening in the heart of God in this moment, his knowledge didn't shift when humans were doing continually evil things. It's just that he was seeing it happen before his eyes and it was breaking his heart in the moment. And what's interesting is that the descriptions about God's heart is that he felt regret, that he felt grief to his heart, and that he was sorry that he made humanity. All right, and and this is kind of maybe a weird or semi-sacrilegious way to describe it, but we don't often uh, humanize God in this way, right? Right? We might just think of him as some creator, rule giver, you know, somewhat of an inconvenience of the things that maybe he requires or demands of us. But yet, the things that the scriptures are pointing out to us in this moment is that God is heartbroken, that the good world that he has made, his desire for creation to see fruition and redemption and restoration happen is now in a point of utter brokenness. And God looks at what he made, and it's just evil and harm to themselves and to one another. And God is heartbroken. Those are the words that describe his heart in this moment. It wasn't anger. God was grieved. And even after the flood, what's peculiar is the hearts of men don't suddenly change. In Genesis 8.21, after the flood and Noah lands on this hilltop and he offers a sacrifice unto the Lord, it says this, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. And so what's weird is like the flood happens as judgment, and I guess I'll let us linger with this discomfort for a couple weeks. It, did it work? Did God solve the problem? Because in the very next generation, right, like they land the boat and God's saying like, yeah, man's heart is still evil from his youth. And so that's kind of an unusual thing to ponder. But I want to point out that God knows man at heart level. Right, this is one of the times in which, right, prior to the story, this narrative, we know that God saw Cain's face, his countenance had fallen, and God inferred what was taking place in his heart and this sin that was against him. Right, we've seen that happen before. Right, we've seen Adam and Eve hide and God kind of exposed like, hey, why are you trying to hide from me? Almost playing along to this idea as though like maybe they could successfully hide from God. But yet now we're beginning to see, wait a minute, God is not merely seeing the actions of humanity. God is seeing the human heart. And this is somewhat unsettling, although there can be comfort found in that idea. In Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That not only does God know the state of our heart, not only does God know our intentions and our motives at all points, that even when it looks like we're doing a good thing, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, on the outside you look great, you're a whitewashed tomb, 
but inside you're full of death and corruption. Right? Like God sees directly inside of us, and it's not merely that he has knowledge of our heart status, but he is also the just judge to whom we must give an account. Right? He is the one that gets to judge us, and not just on our external actions, but all the way deep in our core, our heart level. And this is the problem with humanity. Right? And this is the solution, the hope that is found in Jesus that is prophesied in, I think, Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah talking about this new heart that he's going to give us as a result of the redemption that's found in him. Right? There needs to be a complete change in us from the inside out as a result of what God can do in us. So I want to point out, God saw the hearts then in Noah's generation and God still sees our hearts today. And oftentimes, what's kind of amusing is whenever someone says the phrase in our culture, hey, God knows your heart. God sees your heart. It's offered in somewhat of like a comforting way of like a, hey, I know we both know you're doing the wrong thing right now, but God knows your heart, (laughs) right? Like that's kind of the way that it's offered. Like, yeah, it doesn't even count. Don't worry. God knows. God knows your heart. You're fine. Right? Like, that's the way that it's used. And that phrase is used one time in Scripture, and it's used by Jesus. And you might think, like, he probably uses it the same way, right? Like, oh, God knows your heart. But check this out. This is uh, Luke 16, 13. He's telling a parable. You can go read it on your own time. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. Right? They're like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's a good one. Right? Like, yeah. You know, like, and they're, they love money. And, right, and so they're ridiculing Jesus over what he's saying about the human heart, that it's not merely our actions that matter, whether we're uh, greedy for money, whether we're stealing money, whether we're exploiting others for money. He's like, no, 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 I know that in your heart you are either loving or hating God or money. I know that you are either devoted or despising God or money. Like, I can see in your heart. And the Pharisees just try to laugh it off. And then this is what he says to them. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Right? So the one time the Bible says, God knows your hearts, it's not said in this comforting way that we like to think about it. It's like, hey, Pharisees, God knows your hearts. Like, you think the only people in this town that need to repent are the prostitute and the tax collector? No! You guys too! Right? Like, I know what's going on inside of you. God knows your heart. And so it shouldn't necessarily be a relief to a person when we hear that God knows our heart, if that heart is unrepentant. It should be a full recognition that my selfishness, my sinfulness is on full display and exposed before God. I can't hide in the bushes of the Garden of Eden to try to like not let him see it, right? Like God sees it fully. And then what's interesting, Jesus says there are things that are exalted in, among men that society celebrates, like in Noah's generation, that everyone would have been in agreement. This is awesome. This is wonderful. This is humanity. We can do what we want. And he says that there are some of those things that when God sees them, they are an abomination in his sight. 
Notice this theme of when God sees what's in his sight, the way that God weighs God seeing our heart, the things that we do or think or our actions, our motives, our intentions are before his sight. And he may have a completely different measurement of those things than we in humanity do. That the way God sees is drastically different than us. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Like you look at your own actions in the mirror and you're like, I'm awesome. Good morning, Brian. Like you are, you are amazing, right? Like we look at our own lives and we think we're incredible. This is for, true for all humans. That we all think how great we are. But yet the Lord is the one who weighs the heart. We don't get to be our judge on judgment day. We don't get to have an entire generation who exalts our behavior be our judges on judgment day. We don't get to be judged by our peer group or Noah's generation. They're not going to be like, yeah, no, I think Brian's a great guy. Look at that. You know, no, no, no. The Lord is the one who weighs our hearts. And so he's the one whose words we must adhere to. We might even think that we're right. We might justify our own actions to our own selves and before men, but we aren't the judge. The Lord is. Our eyes see it as right, but in his sight it might be an abomination. God is the one who knows. God is the one who sees. God is the one who judges. It's him. And so I want to recognize how weighty this is. But what's interesting is this is also potentially hopeful. That even though God knows everything about you, God still loves you. That's actually the best possible news. How sad would it be if we served a less than omniscient God and he told us he loved us and the whole time we doubt, yeah, but he doesn't really know what's going on in here. Would he really love me if he knew? Right? The whole time we would question like, no, I'm going to just have to hide this part of my life from that God who says he loves me because if he found out, he probably wouldn't. Right? But God sees everything about us, and he still says, I will take the weight of your sin and bear it for you, that you could be made right. Right? I will bear that sin for you. And so there is this hope that we have, even though God knows everything about us, he still chose to bear our cross and die in, in our place for our sins. It's also worth considering that we don't see things right in the way that God sees them in a positive sense, a quick side story, that we would even misjudge a young boy like David in the Bible, where when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint the next king and David's dad lines up all of the brothers like, hey, Samuel, you should consider these kids, and it doesn't even come to his mind that David's still out in the field with a sheep. He's like, nah, I'm not even going to bother... No, we're not going to waste the prophet's time. It's definitely not that kid, <laughs> right? Like he judged David as like, not even close, David. You're not going to be the king. I'm not even going to say you exist when the prophet comes to visit. And when considering one of David's older brothers, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
And so God can see great potential. He can see one who loves him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, even when the rest of the world and even the church sometimes would discard that individual. God sees. God, God is the one who sees in secret and rewards. Right? That's what Jesus taught us when it comes to prayer, fasting, and giving. God sees those things even when no one else knows the life that you're leading before the Lord. God knows. And God is pleased and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so, when we see this passage in Genesis of God looking on creation, we just think like, man, this is heartbreaking, this is horrible, this is broken, like there's no hope. God's just going to wipe the slate clean and he'll just make a new creation very different than this one. But check this out, back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But, oh, here we go, there's a remnant. Noah found favor. And where? Once again, in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. And it gives us a little summary. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And so even amidst that horrible, wicked, violent generation that God saw and was heartbroken over, he sees this one guy, Noah, who's walking with him. And and God is pleased by Noah. All right, Noah found favor. Noah was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. And he walked with God similar to Enoch. In Genesis 7-1, the next chapter, it says this about Noah, that the Lord said to him, go into the ark, you and all your household. Why? For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. That God was seeing all of Noah's life before him and was pleased. This is, in fact... We'll just focus on this one aspect of Noah's life, his righteousness. This is the first time in Scripture that the word righteous is used, and it's to describe Noah. And upon reading it, you might think, oh, Noah must have just been a really good guy. But no, he's a screw-up. He's like all of us, right? The minute he steps off the boat, he's screwing up, right? Like, literally, he screws up. And so he's the first person documented to do that in the post-flood world. And yet the scriptures tell us how he was seen as righteous. Once again, I want to point out, his righteousness was not because of his deeds. It was not because of who he was or what he had done. It was righteousness that was accredited to him by faith. Right? Hebrews 11.7, by faith Noah, skipping, 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 condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Even in the Old Testament, The first person to ever be spoken of as righteous attained that status not because of his deeds, but because of his faith, because he believed and trusted God. And this is the same way that you and I can attain right status before God. It is by faith, by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. We have nothing to offer him, right, separate from what Jesus has done. This other theme, so we've looked at kind of these, I guess, two characters. There's Noah and then everybody else, right? And we know what God thinks about both groups. And what's interesting is that twice in these passages, Genesis 6-9, it said that Noah was blameless in his generation. Or in Genesis 7-1, that you are righteous before me in this generation, 
Okay, that, that God highlights that in both instances. And this is not to suggest that this is some so, sort of a comparative righteousness. All right, he wasn't just saying that Noah was the least sinful person on the world. Okay, like that, it wasn't like just this low bar. He's like, well, I guess I got to pick one of them. You know, it wasn't like Charlie in the chocolate factory trying to find the least worst kid to give the factory to, right? Like, like that's not what's taking place here. God still has a standard and a bar that is set, right? And so, but he nonetheless highlights this fact that he was righteous in this generation. I think it is to highlight the fact that even in that generation, Noah was righteous. Even in that generation, Noah was blameless. When temptation would be to just be like, literally everyone else is doing it, God, right? Like, literally everybody, like, and but I'm going to still live different. I'm not going to just simply go along with the crowd as in the whole rest of humanity. Right? Like even in that generation, he didn't succumb to temptation and the tendency to just follow everybody else. I think about the fact that he would have been somewhat lonely in that righteousness. Like, I mean, like we might think about our own generation and be like, man, like, you know, Christianity or like, biblical belief and standards and stuff like, we might begin in, in Vermont, perhaps even more so, begin to feel a little bit alone. But no, it was literally ju just Noah. It was just Noah. I suppose Abel could have felt the same way, right? In that story with Cain and Abel in his generation, we only had two named characters in that moment. And Abel was the righteous one, and then the other half of his generation was evil. Right? But, but I think this is happening on a much larger scale. Right? There was just two people in that instance, and it's a 50% chance of righteousness. But in Noah's case, the proportion is so skewed. There's literally just one. One person. It was skewed so far to the side of wicked. Noah was righteous in his generation, and he feared God. And we have the same calling and hope. God is still faithful whatever generation we find ourselves in to give hope, to work, to show mercy. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 50, in a song that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings unto God, she says this, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That even if we were the only righteous person on the planet, there still is hope for God's mercy to be shown upon us, that if we live a life walking before him, fearing him, respecting God, loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, his mercy is available for all generations. Jesus is one that, as far as living in our own generation like Noah did, he desires that we would be wise in our own generation. It says in Luke 16, 8, that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, right? We might think or grieve the fact that, like, Lord, it would have been so much easier if I was living in a different generation, right? Like, if only things were different than they are now, if only it was like some good old days, or if I got to live in a different geography or chronology, like, God, it would have been easier for me then. But God doesn't call you to live in a different generation. God calls you to live in your own generation, God called Noah to live in his generation, and, and Jesus says, be wise, be shrewd, which is actually, that word is used uh, in the Old Testament as well to describe the shrewdness of the snake, and so it sounds kind of uh, devious, 
But it's also the word is used in the book of Proverbs. It, it's just, it's a tactfulness, it's a wisdom. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus says you need to live wise in your generation. You need to know the way your generation lives and thinks and, and be tactful in your approach and have speak the truth in love and season your words with salt and grace, right? Like you need to be able to be a light in this generation. So we need wisdom to live in this generation. God has called us to this chronology, this geography, it says in Acts 17. He has called us to do good works in this life, which we are simply to walk out, Ephesians chapter 2. And the time and place in which we live is where he's called us to do them. All right? God has you here for a purpose. Okay? And our obedience to him is to be demonstrated in our own generation. In fact, Peter, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, Peter, preaching to the crowds, exhorts them as they say, like, Peter, what should we do? Like, as they realize that they were complicit in the death of our Lord of glory. And this is what Peter says, Acts 2.38. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of, of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Right? Every generation, there's still hope for us. Right? For you and for your children and all who are afar off. This still applies to us, that we too can repent and be baptized in understanding the weight of our sin and how our hearts are fully exposed to God. And this is what he says, verse 40, and with many other words, Peter was willing to say it many different ways to make sure it connected. He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. All right, just like Noah, just like Peter in his day, we too now must live and recognize we can't live like the world. We must save ourselves from this generation that we find ourselves in. Or as First John describing the Cain and Abel story that we read a few weeks ago, right? he was saying, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Right? Like we are going to live in contrast to the generation that we live in. Noah was faithful even in the generation when the hearts of men were continually evil. And we're called to do the same sort of thing if we found ourselves in a generation like his. We're called to do the same thing. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless. Remember that word was also used to describe Noah. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We're called to do the same thing. Right? We are called to be innocent and blameless in the midst of a crooked and uh, twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, Paul writing to a church, he says, that I might be proud that I did not run in, in vain or labor in vain. And so once again, the way we live this way, the way we do this is by holding fast to the word of Christ, the words of life. It's by placing our faith and trust in him that we can be blameless and innocent and pure children of God. And then a life that has placed its hope in Jesus will live differently. 
Okay, once we've been gifted righteousness, we will then begin to practice it and it's expressed in the way that we live. All right, he says, right, to be lights in the world, even in a twisted generation. That's what we're called to do. Noah did it in the loneliest possible way. And we have this hope where we're not alone. God has blessed us with community and family and one another. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is with us, that he is with us even to the end of the age. Right, that we have this hope. We're not alone in this mission. Technically, Noah wasn't either. He walked with God. All right, and so we should aim to be faithful in our own generation. Let's see, I'm going to skip to 2 Peter 2. Now, what's interesting is Noah is referred to as righteous, but he did not merely live a life of righteousness in solitude. If you read the Genesis narrative, you don't actually see it there, but 2 Peter 2.5 says this, speaking of God, he said, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a, a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice this descriptor, not only is Noah righteous and blameless, he is a herald of righteousness. Noah was not silent in his building of an ark to protect his own family. Noah spoke. Noah declared. Noah preached a standard of righteousness. He, he, he proclaimed this to the world. Right? Noah chose to still warn the very people that God knew would never listen. And Noah was called to do that. All right? We are called to do the same thing. Right? We are to also proclaim and warn and invite to this incredible hope and freedom and forgiveness that we can find only in Jesus. We can't control whether or not someone responds to that invitation. But we still can, like Noah, offer the hope to this world. So when we think about Noah, let me ask this question. Was Noah, when was Noah righteous? What made Noah righteous? When did he become righteous? Was it before or after building this ark? Let's see. Oh, we've got some guesses over here. Right? When was he righteous? Think about this. Paul asks the same kind of question about Abraham. I think it's Romans 4. About was, was it before or after circumcision that he was accredited as righteous? It's before. In Noah's life, I want to point out, God never would have told him to build the boat if he wasn't already righteous and had found favor in God's sight. All right, the building of the ark was an act of righteousness for sure. It was obedience done in reverent fear of God. But he already was noticed. He was already righteous and blameless in the sight of God before that moment. And as Hebrews had informed us, that righteousness was gifted him, granted him because of faith. It wasn't his deed of building the ark that now causes us to look back and be like, look how righteous he was. It was his faith that was ascribed to him as righteousness. And that's the same thing with all of these other individuals in Hebrews 11. In fact, check this out. There's this really interesting word that's used to describe Noah. Hebrews 11.7. By faith, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was an heir of righteousness. That's kind of a weird, weird word to use in this moment. 
Because what is an heir? An heir is someone who inherits a blessing. An heir is someone who didn't work for all of these possessions or blessings. Someone else did. But upon their death, he receives them. That's what an heir is. And so, in describing Noah's life, it's saying that Noah was an heir of righteousness. He did not work for that righteousness. Someone else worked for it for him. He had this hope that upon a, the death of someone, he would receive this full inheritance of righteousness. And this is the same way that it works for us. Jesus did all of the work. And upon his death, by faith, by trusting in what he did, it can be completely gifted to us, even though we didn't deserve it. And I don't know how prophetic this statement is about Noah. Did he have hope that there would be this coming one, this Messiah, that would one day die in his place, that he could be granted righteousness? I can't really say. But nonetheless, Noah was an heir of righteousness. He did not work for it. It was gifted and received by faith. And so here's, here's the summary of what we looked at today for this one character. Noah, uh, in his story, we find out that God sees all human hearts. We find out that God is grieved by our sin. We find out that Noah lived righteous among a wicked generation and we can too. We find out that Noah proclaimed righteousness and hope to his world, even though they didn't always listen. And we find out that we can be heirs of righteousness when we acknowledge our hearts to God. When we take ownership of the wrong that we've done, whether in our actions, our words, our intents, our thoughts, and our motives. And we can receive this righteousness that comes through the work and death of Jesus. This next song that we're going to listen to, I want us to think about Noah and his perspective. His loneliness in living and walking with God in a world where everyone else was doing their own thing. And that in his life, he doesn't see the full expression of God's plan for redemption played out. He pretty much only gets to see God's judgment. And he gets this glimmer of hope that God would preserve him and his family? Or he gets this glimmer of hope that a dove would bring back a leaf and it's like, there is, there is land out there. God is going to reestablish us. All right, but for the most part, he just sees his own generation through the same eyes that God has. And he's heartbroken. And he, he would have had this hope for redemption, but he, might, he never got to see it in this life. But nonetheless, he inherits the same righteousness that you and I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done, for all that you do. We thank you, God, that most of all, the Lord, even though you know all of our sinfulness, all of the wrong that we've, that we've done, you offer mercy and forgiveness from generation to generation. Lord, I pray that this morning, that, or those listening online, that, that as we hear and think about how you would see the wrong that we've done and the wrong that we think and feel, that, Lord, we would respond, as Peter said, that we would repent, we would turn from that way, that we would be baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we don't have to pretend we aren't 
sinful in our actions at times. We can acknowledge them fully before you and receive the gifted righteousness that you freely offer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.